morning to you. And good morning in Wilmington. It's good to see you as well. We are in a series we've called Identity, and the goal of our time in the Word for the next several weeks will be to determine uh, what does the Christian walk look like in the digital realm. And last week we started this off, and you sort of we walked away last week with a few challenges or charges. One of those was just to take inventory or stock of how you use your digital media, your devices, your smartphones, that sort of thing. Observe and just allow natural questions to begin to, to rise up from that. I, <clears throat> I had several observations for myself last week. I'll share one of them with you. I was at my son's soccer game watching him play and I was sitting on the bleachers with my mother-in-law and my father-in-law. And then they had to leave, so then it was just me. And about that time, my son was playing a position that was on the far side of the field, which, you know, my eyes, I was having to squint, having to work a little bit to see the number on the jersey. And all of a sudden, I kind of came to my senses and my phone was out. And I, you know, I was doing mail and checking calendar and getting work done and playing Candy Crush and reading the news, and I realized, uh, you know, I'm at my son's game, so, and I'm preaching about this stuff. So I put it away, and then a little time passes, it was back out. It had this way of finding its hopping out of my pocket and into my hand. It was like it was connected on a string. And I realized in this moment, I have trained myself to reach for it when when I feel alone. When I'm alone, I reach. And that was interesting. So those discoveries you make about yourself where, you know, the work hasn't even started. It's sort of the workless discovery that opens a door to labor. Um, But, you know, all truth is good news. Every time we know ourselves better, we, it is good news, even with it feels like work. I'm going to show you one more picture today. This picture is not notable because of how, you know, the photographer who took it or the angle or the camera lens or exposure. In fact, any one of you could have taken this picture with your smartphone. Um, and what is kind of what the message of this picture is the all-too-familiar notion. We've all seen this. In fact, I'm grateful that I'm not in this picture. (laughs) Many of us have been this. Face down in public. They're alone in public. It's interesting. I was a late adopter to the smartphone, um, took me a long time. Uh, Well, I was concerned it would become a doorway for sin for me, so I held it off and held it off, and then finally became so normative, I took it, and then it became a doorway for sin to me. And it's taken several years of of fencing things off and establishing godly spirituality about it. But I was a late adopter. And I distinctly remember, and if you're a late adopter in here, you'll know what I mean, I distinctly remember the feeling of standing in line at Chick-fil-A or Moe's or wherever we were, 
being the only person who didn't have one, wondering what is it that they're looking at? Like, I'm stuck in the lame old present place, and wherever they are is better. I mean, obviously it's better because they've left here. What are they looking at? There's this sort of portability in the smartphone. It's, it promises, it offers this big menu of places and it'll take you, experiences that it will bring you into, that any time we enter something that is the slightest bit mundane, it's sort of our escape hatch. I would stare at my flip phone at the numbers. <laughs> but how long can you do that before people get onto you? Like, he's not really looking at anything. I'm just kidding. The smartphone has become, in a lot of ways, a shield in public. It's a shield. When it's out, it's a normal, a socially acceptable means of saying to the rest of the world, I would rather not talk right now. If you want to like turbo boost it, you put in earphones. And that's a serious way of saying, I'm alone in public. I'm alone. I want to be left alone. The funny thing is, we want to be left alone, but we don't actually want to be alone. So, I use the cell phone to shield myself from people in public, but I use it every bit as much when I'm by myself to shield me from being alone. What is up with that? In public, I use it to insulate myself. And I'm saying I, I'm, I'm, this is the I general. It certainly is guilty of me, but I guess I could say we. In public, our culture insulates themselves from reality and people as a rule. And when we are by ourselves, we use it to shield ourselves from being alone. What's wrong with where we are? That we would, in so many different circumstances, opt out of where we are. That is sort of the idea that gets things going this morning. I want to introduce sort of a basic observation, which is the smartphone phenomenon has the ability of taking us away from wherever we are. It's a way that offers us an opportunity not to be in the one place that we actually are. And that's sort of a phenomenon. It's not entirely unique to the smartphone. It's always been present. Well, I imagine it's been present since the dawn of time, but if somebody can hide away in a good book, somebody can avoid reality in a good book, at the bus stop, there was always the person who would open up the newspaper. That was the socially acceptable way of saying, I would rather not talk to you right now. So we see these things, we see past overlays of this sort of idea, but what's unique, what's very unique about the smartphone is it offers so many different ways for so many of us to always opt out of the present reality, wherever and however we are. It's hyper, whatever we used to do. You might think, what has the digital age done? It's done nothing new except turn up the frequency. 
We can do the things we've always been sort of trying to do at a level and a speed which is inhuman. We now never need to be where we are. Sometimes we exit with harmless diversions. I'll call them harmless. I imagine it's not so much the message, it's the medium. So why am I doing what I'm doing is a better question. But sometimes it's harmless, at least apparently so, seemingly. Trivia crack, dots, solitaire, candy crush. Sometimes it's obviously evil. Pornography, inappropriate relationships and texting. Right? Those things are obvious evil. And then there is a broad category in the middle. An environment where good things happen and bad things happen, where strange things happen, you know, a case can be made, is it neutral, is it good, is it bad? I'm going to, this broad category I'm going to call social media. And I'm going to give a little bit of attention to it today because it is a very interesting forum. In social media, you could in one moment be laughing at a, a kitten video that somebody posted and in the next moment be engaged in infidelity. I mean, two posts away. That it would bridge that much space and time. You could take one hat off and put another hat on. That Remember, the medium is the message and the point of the first sermon was we... The things of this world have a tendency, have a trend. And when we use these things, it's the using of them that shapes us as much, if not more, than the message the message, or what's actually being transmitted through them. So we're being adapted and altered and shaped by the mere fact that we're fostering relationships in some ether than the kinds of relationships we necessarily may be fostering or what we are actually saying or reading. I'm going to give some attention to social media, so let me give you a warning here. Uh, There's no way I'm going to come out a winner with some of you on this. So I just want to know I'm going to talk about tendencies, trends. I'm not labeling you or the way you use it. I'm certain that you're perfect. Okay? So please, but please don't allow sort of what I say as a tendency to be felt as a judgment because I do think many wonderful things happen, good and bad things happen, but tendencies take us somewhere. We are not impervious to the tide. Also, I will say I am largely a social media outsider. So if you want to, well, what does he know? This is it. I'm giving you the what does he know card. I don't partake in this. Yes, I have a Facebook page. Terry is my only friend. (laughs) I've only ever used it for like church website stuff. And uh, I have never posted. I have a, a friend in the church once got me to get a Twitter account. I made two tweets my whole life. I have a good handle, though. I'm pasteurizing. I like that. That's cool. But it's totally wasted. 
So I'm largely a social media outsider. So that makes me uh, kind of clumsy about nuancing, okay? So I'm going to get little things wrong here and there, but it actually gives me something, which is sometimes outsiders see the big things very clearly. Just like if we had grabbed somebody from a village in deep Ecuador and brought them up to the food court with that Chick-fil-A and said, look at that. He would look at all these downturned faces and say something in his native tongue like, that's weird. And he would be right. He, wouldn't be, he would be incapable of nuancing the moment, but he would be able to point at it clearly and say, what, what? this building is full of people by themselves. I've never seen that in my village. Okay. So here are some trends, some social media trends that, that I, I perceive are the case. First, social media tends to be highly self-selective and tailorable. So when a person goes on social media, they can highly tailor the sort of environment that they want, unlike reality. When I'm standing fully in my place and time, I lose a lot of ability to shape that environment. Who's in the room? Who's not in the room? What we're going to talk about? Where this conversation is going to go? I, I lose that. I give that over to the room in reality. But in social media, we, there's a highly tailorable, that's one of the draws, is you can pick your forum, pick your subject, pick your affinity, pick your friends, pick your, pick your venue, pick your ring of the circus, whatever it is. You can, you can create, you can create, I'm not saying you're doing it, but a life of massive homogeneity where you are with your kind of people talking about your kinds of subjects all the time. It's possible. It tends to put people in their little tribes. Social media also tends to promote Because of its spacelessness, it tends to promote things at a distance to be roughly equatable or equal to things close, people close. People far away and people close don't feel all that different in social media because physical distance is not a big deal. You don't, at least I don't think, I can't nuance, but I don't think on Facebook, if you're communicating with someone on Facebook that there's a warning, a big loud noise where your screen turns red and says, caution, this person is outside of a 25-mile radius. You may never see them again. I don't see that. It, it values the person far, far away just as much as the person here. That's entirely unlike reality. We are local creatures. But online, the world is my forum. We used to call that a pin pal. Do you remember that? Pin pal. There was no confusing that. Like, it's obviously not a real friend. They live a thousand miles away. It's a pin pal. I mean, the pin pal is entirely obsolete because we've elevated and promoted it to be roughly equivalent to someone who's close. Another trend. Participation in social media tends to be built on the principle of of selective self-disclosure. Selective self-disclosure. You share what you want about yourself. The version, right? And 
Good things and bad things can go on here, okay, but there's a trend. You can define who you are. I imagine in these places where people post pictures of themselves, I imagine they have, nobody picks the day where they have the big old zit on their nose to post that picture. Right? You're going to wait till the day passes. Unlike the real world where you walk around with that big old honk around your nose all day and all your friends act like they don't see it, like they have to step out of the shade of it and keep talking to you even though it's like right there. They want to reach out. Like online, you don't have to deal with that. In the real world, you have to deal with that. You have to get up out of bed, all ugly like you are, and enter the real world. Online, you can take a picture, a selfie after selfie after selfie after selfie until you find the one that is somewhat acceptable. And that's who you are. It's entirely entirely selective self-disclosure. And yet, it's all the other person gets. So all of you that they get is the sum of you that you've given. Now, in reality, we do this, even in real world, right? We are slow about playing our cards. But in real life and in the real setting, we have the ability to begin to burn through sort of the wall of self-disclosure that we build. So over time, you get to see somebody in different settings and different problems and different relationships, and you can slowly start to put pieces together and build something that approximates all of them. That happens in, in real relationships. Social media tends to celebrate breadth and minimize depth. Breadth over depth. I told you I have this Facebook page. I have literally never sent an electron out of my computer for this thing, and yet I probably get every six hours an email of a thousand people I might know. You might know these people. Here's a hundred people you might know. Here's 20 people you might I am emailed more by Facebook than anyone else in the world. Every day, Facebook tells me who I might know. It's trying to broaden me out. And and there's good things about that, right? There's great things that can happen there. But I've never gotten an email from Facebook saying, hey, when was the last time you took somebody out for lunch? They've never asked me that. They've never asked me when's the last time I actually confessed my sins to a brother in Christ. They've never, they do not care about you. And they celebrate breadth over depth so that a person can come to think that they are very good at relationships because of how many people they barely know. Last trend, and I'm sure there's more, but uh, the last trend, social media tends to be an arena that fosters the most barbaric language I have ever experienced or heard on the face of the planet. Um, I mean, things are said online that I've, and I've grown up in plenty of locker rooms that I've never heard there. 
the amount of mali- the degree of mal- malice and mean-spiritedness that seems to find a home there, you would only hear in angry mobs or riots or maybe in the worst fight you would ever have with your spouse in the bedroom. The kind of language that is sort of regularly present in the comment sections after a news article. It's, it's interesting. I have a theory. It's sort of like a dog on a chain. If you ever noticed, dogs on chains bark more. They run to the ends of their chain and they, they bark like they're tough. They're like, you better not come over. And if you take them off the chain, they, very often they normalize. Oh. Rough. <laughs> I mean, it's, it gets real benign. My dog, I used to have a dog, so tough on the chain. You take him off the chain, he, will you pet me? I think there's, a, there's, a, there's an insulating buffer in the realm of social media, online relationships and online communication, that it's like it puts you on a chain and it allows people to say things they would never say in an accountable environment where they had to come back and answer for what they said or follow up on a relationship or that their career might go in one direction or another. But with the anonymity and with the degree of self-disclosure that they can elect to show, there's amazing things that we say. Those are tendencies. And somebody's driving that. (laughs) The prince of this error is driving that. I mean, you really have to wonder. Again, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but just to get us thinking. I just... And I mean, Facebook is iconic for this subject, but it's true about all these. Have you noticed these things are worth billions of dollars in the open market? Billions of dollars are traded and amassed and consolidated in companies like Facebook. They are worth tremendous amounts of money, and yet every user goes on for free. You use it for free. somebody's getting something. Somebody thinks they can shape you. It is worth a tremendous amount of money for the opportunity to go to this venue and tell you what to think. And people who bet their entire careers on it know it works. It has its tendencies. And social media is just one, I think, is a crowning example of an alternative that we've taken on ourselves to not be where we presently are. We could be here now with real people doing real things, but it's, it's, it's a really good example of, of the fire, the sort of the fire escape from our present setting. One author described online social media as the desire to foster a frictionless relationship. Frictionless relationship. He described it as being as smooth as the glass on your phone. He said, we just want to swipe right to have things work right. The reality is, relationship is built in the midst of friction. Real relationship plods along and backtracks and takes time and gets mired and gets stuck. Real relationship is difficult. Real relationship, you can't think all night about what you want to say, edit it, Take a look at it, 
post it and walk away. Some, you're going to say it wrong and someone's going to say something back at you and it's, the conversation's going to go where you never thought it would and that's just how real is. And we are becoming a very strange kind of people who have primarily, are primarily learning how to build relationship when they are alone. The world of social media is relationship building when you're by yourself. And how... It at least should flag as a little strange. <clears throat> and what I'm going to do, I, the, the response from Scripture that I have to offer here, I longed for a pithy proverb. I wanted this finely tuned spear of a proverb that I could throw and it could sort of settle all this down and... You could hang it on your fridge or do whatever you wanted with it. I don't have that. I don't have, I sort of think it's the fact that we're stuck in this, in it's a murky, relevant reality right now. So we don't have 2020 hindsight. There's no history's been written about it. But we're sort of, it's not obvious for me uh, to have a narrow, concise path to say this is where we ought to go. What I have to offer is a broad view of Scripture. And I think if you just allow this to have stay power with you, it, it may help good things come. So I'd like us to begin to think at the very beginning of the Bible with how we were made. In Genesis 1, God says that he made us in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It's all sorts of things, right? It's We share many of the attributes of God, in part. We share the ability to reason, the, the ability to express a will. These things are at the center, I think, of what it means to be made in the image of God. One of the things that's not there, though, is do we actually look like God? No. Strange thing is, it's a visual word given. We're made in the image of God, and yet one of the few ways that we are in contrast with God is in the way we're made, right? God is infinite. He's without boundary. He's limitless. And we have been made by him, I should add. He has made us with limit finite material. We are only in one place at one time. We can't super extend ourselves across space and time like he can. He can abundantly be everywhere always. When we go somewhere, when we pick up a telephone, we distribute ourselves and thin ourselves out. We might say God made us in his image, except expressly in the way that we are material, limited, and finite. And that way he made us not to be in his image. That is one of the number one ways that we, the non-fallen man, I'm not talking about fallen man, it's maybe the number one way that the non-fallen human contrasts to the Lord. Is in our finite materialness, our thinginess. That's worth noting. It's worth noting that God had some extreme 
I've, uh, some purpose in his mind by making it so that you cannot cross space and time because he does cross space and time. It's the first thought. I build on that, the, w- the way the Bible reveals the Lord to us. So the scriptures are the revelation of God to man. It's how God shows us about himself. And he is right, the infinite and boundless, the limitless divine reveals himself to the finite and the limited through Scripture. And through Scripture, we learn about God. We learn things like he wants us to know more than just he's God, because there's many counterfeit gods. He's the Lord of Lords. He is our Father. He is the husband of Israel or of the church. He is King. Those are helpful images that help to reveal him. He reveals himself in story. And all of this, all of this way that he's revealing sort of culminates towards the final image, which is the exact imprint of the divine. The pure radiance of the glory of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of the invisible God shown to us. And what does it say about Jesus? This is from Philippians. It speaks about him. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What's this say about Christ? It says Christ, boundless and infinite, shed himself, shed himself of his boundlessness, emptied himself of his infiniteness, and willingly bottled him up in the finite boundary of the human body. He took on the form of a man. It's, it's almost like a reverse description. He took on our image and our likeness. For the Lord to truly reveal himself to us, he entered into our, our sense of things and Christ bound Christ, finite and limited as he was, walk this earth with us. And you don't see examples in the ministry of Christ of him trying to escape that reality. You don't see him in uncomfortable places and times. If anybody had access to infinite and boundless, I would like to think it's him. And you don't see him in difficult places and times choosing to leave where he is. He's being tempted in the desert. He's been fasting for days and days and days. He's obviously hungry. The enemy comes to tempt him, saying, hey, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Does Jesus climb out on some ethereal fire escape? No. He resides. There is purpose for Christ there. And you see this all through his ministry. You do, we do not have a Messiah who is an escape artist. Where he is, is where he ministers. Where he is, he is fully. If he's with the crowd, he's fully with the crowd. If he's with the 12, he's fully with the 12. If he's in a house, he's fully in the home. If he's by himself, he is withdrawn to be fully with God. Where he is, he is fully, undistracted undissolved, undivided. He is fully present. 
you see, there's a great image in Mark chapter 6. This, this week, I kept going, I, went, I picked Mark and just went through Mark. And where are signs of, well, I was looking for the, the arrow to shoot, and I didn't get one. But what I saw was just time after time where I thought, Jesus, because Jesus is fully present, because he's fully engaged where he has been placed, he sees things and feels things and does things and says things that make all the difference. So in the story where where the paralytic is lowered down through the roof of the house and he says, your sins are forgiven and all of the teachers and scribes of the law think to themselves, the story says, he can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. That's blasphemy. They say to themselves, it says Jesus perceiving what they had said in their hearts. Now, maybe you want to say it's because Jesus has magic tricks. I'd like to think it's because he's fully present. There's an occasion in Mark 6. Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples. They had come back. Sent out two by two and they'd come back. And Jesus says, hey, let's withdraw to a place so that we can be together. He longed to sort of retreat with the 12 to, to nourish and, and refresh, Right? And it says they tried to do that. And so they got in the boat and they're, go- they're, they're going across the Sea of Galilee on the boat. But the crowds that Jesus had been teaching were still so caught up with him that they followed along on the shore. They followed along around, so they were keeping up with the boat. And it says in Mark, it's a great line in Mark, that Jesus looked and saw them and he says they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he gets out of the boat and he goes on a hill and he begins to teach again. And this is where the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. And it says that evening, once he had dispersed the crowds and they had gone their own way, he said to the disciples, get in the boat and go, I'll join you later. And he withdrew to be with the Lord. You see, in one day, he's going to be with his disciples. That opportunity is, so he's holy with the people. And then there's this time. So I'm not implying that if we were like Jesus, we would give all of ourselves to everybody all the time. I'm saying, Jesus had a sense of where he needed to be, and he was all there. He didn't seem to rail against the realness of it all. I cannot find accounts in Scripture where the Christ has shielded himself from And you're the body of Christ. We are the manifest glory. We are to be the radiance of the glory of God. Revealing Christ progressively to the world. When I think of the ways, and I'll use myself again, the ways I shield myself from people, I, shield my, I must shield myself from the Lord in private. I've been just wondering why. Why is praying so hard? Why is where we are never good enough? It seems to me that where Jesus was was good enough for him because he wasn't there for himself. 
He was immersing himself for us. His ministry was not a ministry. It was an immersive ministry. He came for us. And this is, listen, body of Christ, this is, we can live a life of insulation all we want until we choose to follow Jesus. And then we are part of an immersive ministry. Then we are part of a sentness, an unshieldingness, an the, we are no longer able to selectively decide what we disclose because we are bound by his purpose to be confessional people and to wonder, what would God have me do now in this setting? I think, I think of all the ways we shield ourselves. One interesting thing I've noted in this season of our, my life, as long as I've lived, I've never heard the, the, the social cultural conversation that longs for greater diversity. I've never heard the language like I have in recent years. The greater desire for sort of the harmonic expression of diversity, which I echo. I can't help but feel, though, in studying this, that the most shielded society we've ever been part of is the one that's saying it. Like, we're part of a culture that is continually opting out of where we are into our homogeneity, our self-selected homogeneity, and yet echoing a desire for the opposite. We go places like the DMV, which may be diverse in a thousand different ways. And with our smartphone, we pronounce before the Lord, you have no purpose for me here. I mean, the challenge might be to see that, to wonder about that. What are you pronouncing before the Lord when you leave the place you're at? When you leave the line you're in? I'm gonna end with this story because what I would hope is that we would have an increasing sensitivity to those around who need to be seen, and an increasing notion that we are sent to be immersed into this world. So there's an account in Mark. It's Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read it to you. It's on the screen. Again, may the setting of the ministry of Jesus just maybe compel us to uh, ask certain questions. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. Then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians. And had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? Now, I don't know 
what it fully means, that power went out of Jesus, and then he felt that. I've never felt that when someone touched me. I do have a sense, though, that if someone who is nameless needs hope, I want to be able to see them. I want to be, I have a longing to be so present where God has put me that someone like this lady who never gets a name, someone like her, would be fully seen and would find hope. And we sing songs like, when I think about the Lord, how he raised me, how he saved me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he placed me in the uttermost, it says it makes me want to shout. Who do you think is at the driving wheel, behind the wheel of a culture that is entirely face down, silent in public and alone? I may not know everything, but that's not right. Something is afoot. We were sent into the world. So I'll leave you with this challenge. Whether it's whether it's just breaking a few habits, whether it's maybe a social media, maybe you've been trending in social media, pardon the pun, in certain ways that um, maybe have you have been unconsciously falling in the trends. I might say this. What if we have a renewed value for the person in the room? What if we had a renewed sense of, I'm going to give my best to those who are here And what's left over is what I share there. And when I'm with the Lord, when I'm alone, I'm going to seek to give my best before the Lord. Actually seek to commune with Him. And what I have left over, maybe that's trivia crack. Maybe we could reverse those. Maybe we could try to watch our automatic response to reach for something as a shield of getting us out of where we are. Because I have a sense that God sent us to places like this and he has a purpose. He has not wasted you. He's called you. Let's pray. Lord, be with us as we step softly into the the uncomfortable world of sort of figuring ourselves out before you. Lord, for those who are caught too much of their identity is connected to uh, the way this device will portal us to other places. Lord, I pray for them. I lift them up in the Holy Spirit. Lord, you do great things in the power of your Spirit. I pray, Lord, that what might feel like a daunting or even enslaved position now, Lord, might become a place where they can proclaim your name, where they can experience freedom. And Lord, we long that our identity would Our identity would be anchored in you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.